We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 103. It's the 4th of July, 2017. The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove with me, Scott the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, Scott. G'day, Trevor. How are you? I'm going well, Scott. Going very well. That's good. Um, Pleased to mm. hear that. At the end of the last episode, Scott, I was feeling a little bit guilty because Mm. we really gave the Catholics a hard time in the last episode. (laughs) Even I felt a little bit... Oh, you know, have we gone too far on Catholic bashing in this episode? You know, I don't no. think it's possible to ever go too far on Catholic bashing, but especially given the week they had, I think they deserved it. But, but they and did. then within 24 hours of us closing down that podcast, two things happened. So. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. With the very next day, news that Cardinal Pell has been charged uh, by summons. Yes. And yes. we had a crazy nun, Catholic nun story that we'll get on to. And, and a third thing, Scott, where uh, Tony Abbott um, started talking about submarines. So, uh, you know, <laughs> everything was right up my alley in the 24 hours following. So, um, so anyway, Scott, um, uh, before we get on to Cardinal Pell, let's, let's deal with uh, the crazy nun story. So... This one, dear yeah. listener, uh, just bizarre. So, uh, it was odd, wasn't it? Mm. K- Kynan Wykes, 10 years old, in his year four class, thought that they were starting a normal school day when a nun walked into the classroom at 9.30am on Tuesday holding a letter that she said came from the Prime Minister's office. All sounds good so far. Their parents... Uh, weren't looking after them well enough. This is what the letter said. And they would be taken away, she told students, at St Justin's Catholic Primary School in Oran Park. They didn't believe it at first, and some of the students went to the teacher to ask if it was true. She said it was real, and several started crying. Some couldn't eat their lunch, and kind of started thinking of ways to escape before the end of the school day. It wasn't until 2.50pm that they were told... It was all part of a lesson on the stolen generations and they were asked to write down how it made them feel. And Kynan's mother you know, goes on to say, you know, it was just emotional abuse. The poor kid came home scared out of his wits and the article goes on where the principal, well, we could have done things a little bit better, maybe, but oh well. <laughs> Scott, a, n- a nun walks into a classroom, says there's a letter from the Prime Minister, and uh, your parents are doing a bad job, and you're going to be taken away. And this goes on for six it, hours. This goes on for the whole bloody day. I mean, like this is the thing that was really ridiculous about it all was that they didn't they didn't just tell the kids and keep an eye on them for an hour, and then at the end of the hour say, right, now you got to write down how that made you feel because it's all fake, it's all nonsense. You're not being taken away from your parents. You know everything's okay. They went through and they held these kids under the be- under the false belief that they were going to be taken from their parents <laughs> until the end of the day. I mean, now, it was no wonder a nun gave the news because she'd never have any kids of her own. You know, 
It was absolutely insane <laughs> that they did that. It's mind-boggling when you consider the lengths that we go to to protect kids and make sure that they don't fall over and, and all of these dangers are removed from the vicinity and a nun can walk into a classroom and literally terrorise kids for six hours. So um, that is just bizarre and just an example of how out of touch some people can be. Well, it was bizarre, wasn't it? It was really... Oh. Hmm. Yeah, but so, to keep them... Keep them on tenderhooks till 2.50 in the afternoon. Yeah. You know, and, and Kynan started thinking of ways to escape before the end of the school day. Well, of course he would. <laughs> you know, he'd been uh, told by people in authority that he was being taken away from his parents. Of course he was going to try and run away. Uh, it, it, it's absolutely mind-numbingly stupid that they would think that was a good idea. Now what is he going to think when anything is told to him at all during the school day? He's going to go, is this another joke? Like, it could be any exactly. topic at all. Are you going on exactly. an excursion today? And he'll be thinking, well, maybe, are we? Or are we going, what a terrible, yeah. terrible way to ch- treat children. So so there we go. Crazy nun story. That came out the day after our last uh, podcast. But um, moving on to Cardinal Pell. And Scott, we were discussing this before starting the podcast. And this gets tricky, dear listener, to talk about Cardinal Pell because you might recall in an episode not that long ago when we were talking about the three uh, ministers in the federal government or at least were they ministers or... Yeah, there were three ministers mm. in the federal government had been charged with... Um, contempt of court. Uh, well, Contempt of court, well, yeah. you know, Well, they hadn't been charged, but the, the court was considering charging them, yeah. Exactly, because they'd made statements saying... Um, you know, what they thought the court should do. And we discussed then contempt of court and and briefly mentioned subjudice rules. And that applies in our current situation with Cardinal Pell, where uh, now that it's an official matter before the court, it's a situation where we and anybody else uh, in Australia or around the world for that matter really has to be very careful about what they say about this case. So, Scott, I've got an article here which gives a bit of guideline, and this one says, If you have been following the Pell case and are a social media user, chances you would have seen tweets taking a position or at least offering an opinion as to the Cardinal's guilt or innocence. This was all a harmless game while ever Pell was walled up in the Vatican City. Such commentary was legally fine from a subjudice point of view, even though it may or may not have been defamatory. All the speculation must now come to a halt until the completion of the legal process against Pell, uh, including any appeal time uh, afterwards, because we're now in the subjudice period. And this is going to go on for several years, Scott, because this will be a long-running case. Um, uh, the ideas of, of subjudice uh, is to ensure that defendants get a fair trial. And... The Victorian government solicitor has considered what might be contemptuous material in a criminal trial, and that would be A, any material which prejudices the guilt or innocence of an accused, B, material which either criticises or creates sympathy for an accused or a victim, C, um, information about prior convictions, criminal history, and D, interviews with witnesses. So, Scott, we cannot talk about any of those sorts of things on this podcast, and in particular, mm. like we can't say whether we think he's innocent or guilty or why he should be either of those, and 
It also says material which either criticises or creates sympathy for an accused or a victim. So, mm. so we can't say anything about his alleged victims, mm. or we can't say anything about him. And I think that's where it's probably wise for us to, mm. to, to uh, end our conversation on, on Cardinal Pell until such time as all his uh, appeals have been exhausted. Mm. Even things uh, which uh, either criticises or creates sympathy for an accused or a victim. I was kind of keen to talk about an article that dealt with the, um, the access that Cardinal Pell had to Tony Abbott and how much mm. they had in contact mm. with, other, with each other. But if you talk about that sort of stuff long enough, you know, it's possible that you're either building up his character or putting down his character, and a character assassination or a character build-up in the current circumstances, Scott, is, is perhaps a dangerous thing to do. So we'll steer clear of it. Well, I think you're right. I think we've got to be, very, you know, I've... I've Really mouthed, I've really mouthed off in preparation for this until I read this article, and then I thought to myself, "Bloody hell, I don't think I'm going to say anything." So, mm. well, you would not you know. have been alone, Scott. And uh, this article refers to um, uh, Divine. What's her name? Miranda Divine. Miranda uh, Divine. Yeah, now, she she went berserk, didn't she? Yeah, she came out on uh, Twitter and said all sorts of things, dear listener. I can't tell you what she said, because if I was to repeat them, then I would be in breach of these yeah, rules exactly. as well. So there's links on the um, website if you're interested as to what she said, and she's had to frantically delete a lot of, a lot of what she said as well. So even somebody, an experienced journalist like that, um, can get caught up in these things. So, um, so yeah, so... Some of the things that we had planned. I mean, I think we can. We, I think we can actually say what her hashtag was, which was hunting Catholics, can't we? Yes, we could. We could say that. So that's yeah. that might give I mean, you like a gist. That's just, that's just madness that she's gone to that length. But anyway, mm. yeah. mm. we'd previously mentioned mm. her on a few other things, and she was quite rabid about different things. Um, she really um, was off the scale on some of these things. So it's not out of character for her to do that sort of thing. Anyway, mm. so. Dear listener, if you're on social media and you follow, you know, atheist, secular, rationalist pages, uh, feeling, you know, and seeing all sorts of things about Cardinal Pell, think twice about whether you make any comment and best that you don't. Right, Scott. I think you. Well, I think that's very wise advice is just to uh, keep quiet about it all. Mm. Fortunately, there's plenty of other goings-on that we can talk about and uh, this... <laughs> This is a fun one. Uh, it's about a wedding, uh, dear listener. Uh, you know, weddings are always a lovely story, aren't they? It's what, what could possibly go wrong in a wedding? And uh, this one is in Detroit. And uh, it was any bride's dream wedding. A packed church, a beautiful white dress, and a palpable feeling of excitement and love. But what made Saturday's ceremony at the Cathedral of the Most Blessed Sacrament really special was the groom. And the groom, dear listener, in this case, was Jesus. That's right. <laughs> Three women from Metro Detroit were the first to become consecrated virgins in the Archdiocese of Detroit. The little-known vocation involves a commitment to lifelong chastity. 
And essentially what these three women did was went through a wedding ceremony where they married Jesus. Thoughts, Scott? <laughs> I just... <sighs> I just thought to myself at the time when I was reading this, I thought to myself, this is just a bride of Christ, a nun thing, that sort of thing. Then I read into it and I thought to myself, no, they're not. They're just virgins, not nuns. Which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever that they would lock themselves away from the love of a man or a woman. And for what? They still got to keep themselves and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't seem to me to make any sense. It's, it's cry- madness. Mm. Uh, there are about 250 consecrated virgins in the US and 4,000 worldwide, believe it or not. Um, uh, one of these uh, ladies, whose name, last name is, uh, her name is Teresa Jordan. Um, she said, I felt like it was an opportunity to take my relationship with Christ one step further. Uh, and she added, it's not a vocation you can just one, two, three, get into. It takes a lot of formation, study and prayer. One of the other participants, she bought her wedding dress online. She was drawn to its boat neck, cinched waist, chiffon bottom, details that reminded her of Jackie Kennedy and Grace Kelly. <laughs> Seriously. The difference being is that Jackie Kennedy had a sexual relationship with her husband, you know. He had a sexual relationship with a lot of other women as well. Which is, I know, yeah. he did, but, you know, it's still... At least there was, um, yeah. yes. Oh, this is the best part. Everyone picked out, ring. yeah. Everyone picked out rings. Uh, Irvin, so her name is, uh, let me see, Karen Irvin, designed hers with a crown of thorns inside a white gold band connected to a rose gold fleur-de-lis cross. And most importantly, the women spent extra time in prayer and reflection. Scott, this is all hilarious and just weird and funny, but there's a serious side to this. At what point is there a duty on the church and society to help delusional people? At what point do we say, these people need help, this is just crazy, and we should be convincing them to have a fulfilling and meaningful life? Is that a reasonable thing for society to, to do? Absolutely it is. It really is. I don't know at what point you actually sit them down and say, look, sister, you've gone too far, you know. (laughs) I would have thought at some stage before they actually gave their vows and that type of thing, you'd want to sit them down and say, you're going too far. I think this is ridiculous. You should take a step back, you know, get married, have children, all that sort of stuff, you know. It's it's ironic, yeah. Scott, that the Catholic Church, who is against gay marriage because marriage is between a man and a woman, yeah. are happy to have a ceremony that is a, between a woman and Jesus. <laughs> exactly. But, oh, we've got a question here from one of our listeners. Grant, does Jesus have a sister for me? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's true, like, uh, a marriage has to be between a man and a woman, yet Catholic Church is conducting marriages between women and Jesus. Polygamous marriages at that, then, it would have to be. It would have to be, because, you know, you've got 4,000 of these people across the planet, don't you? Mm, yep. Yeah. Uh, Consecrated virgins. 
Yeah, so he's got 4,000 other wives across the planet. It's madness that, you know, that it's anything but a polygamous relationship. Mm. Um, Scott, I said, you know, at what point do we just say to authorities, you know, there's people to be helped here. We just can't let this go on as, as a little bit of nonsense. And the example that I've mentioned previously, and I'll mention it again, is, uh, is from Japan, where they've got this phenomenon where uh, Japanese um, young men mostly um, lock themselves up in their bedrooms and refuse to exist in the outside world. Uh, it's thought that there's nearly one million of them in Japan and they are called hikiki omori. Uh, it's a trend for young Japanese, predominantly males, locking themselves away. Uh, it's a very worrying social and health problem for the country, and it is mystifying mental health experts. And um, what this article says is that uh, the phenomenon is puzzling mental health workers who are trying to treat those who suffer from the condition. The Japanese government has poured huge amounts of funding into greater understanding of hikikomori, However, the rate of success treatment remains low. So in that situation, the government and society have said it is crazy for these boys to lock themselves in their bedroom and, and basically lock themselves away from society. We've got to do something about it. Mm. At what point can we say to a consecrated virgin that this is just crazy what you're doing? I mean, you don't have to get married and have sex with a man, but just... At what point can we say you're delusional and you need some help? I don't know. I mean, that's, that was my... I don't know what the answer is, but clearly sitting on the sidelines and allowing this nonsense to go ahead, it's crazy. It's got to stop, you know. Hmm. Even... Uh, and anyway. you would think... You'd think that in the US, which is ahead of the world in many, many respects, would... You'd think that their church would be saying to these ladies, don't, you know, you can, you can still love the Lord and that sort of stuff, but you don't need to marry him, you know? Mm, well, they're ahead of the world on, on lots of things, but perhaps not in the religion's fit sphere, Scott, so... No, apparently not, yeah. Mm, actually, I'll just divert for a moment. You know, previously we said that what Australia needs is a First Amendment where you've got yeah. the separation of church and state and... You've also got the um, uh, free speech all wrapped up in the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. There's been a case uh, just recently in the States, um, Trinity Lutheran Church uh, went all the way to the Supreme Court and... Uh, they... Oh, was this over the asphalt replacement in their... Yeah, um, it's putting that uh, rubberised material... Their... Yes, exactly, yeah. On, ...on a kid's playground... And yeah. but it's a playground belonging to a church group, and mm. they've applied for funding and appealed when it wasn't allowed. And normally in America, you just can't get any money from the government for a religious purpose. And mm. um, in this case, they got the money. Like the, mm. the judges, um, in a very seemingly odd decision, as described by uh, the legal fraternity, 
I've opened it up and there's a small wedge, Scott, that's going to cause all sorts of problems in the US uh, now that that can of worms has been opened. And uh, Well, I you mean, know, I, was, I've lis- I listen to a lot of podcasts from the US that are on secular issues and um, it was first brought up on um, 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 The Scathing Atheist. Mm-hmm. And this is when I first heard about the... Uh, when I when I first heard about the uh, the, the ruling, mm-hmm. and their guest said, "Yeah, the Christians are going to be fine with this until the first Islamic mosques ask for government money, mm. and then all the hell is going to break loose." And they said, "Yeah, well, you know, we should get the Church of Satan in on this and all that sort of stuff too, you know." Mm. So it is absolutely maddening that you've got this situation which has been allowed to be. You know, and they have overturned hundreds of years of tradition on this. It's really crazy. When the case case started, it was a Democrat um, government uh, involved fighting it against the uh, Lutheran Church, but the uh, it changed to a Republican, and when it went then went to the Supreme Court, they just played dead on the issue because they didn't really they were happy for the money to go to the Lutherans. So um, yeah. So instead of raising strongly all of the possible legal arguments that they could, they actually played dead on a lot of them, and that's one of the reasons why this case went through. And the lawyers are saying, well, in a situation where there is no longer conflict between the groups, it shouldn't have continued. It should have been discontinued. So it's a really... um, It's a bizarre one, and, uh, you know, that First Amendment has helped... Uh, keep the religious groups at bay in America, um, you know, you can't have school prayers. There's no funding of, you know, private schools, private religious schools, but all that's open for grabs now. Who knows where it will end? Yeah, exactly. It, it's really um, madness that the, that the Supreme Court has opened it up the way they have. Mm. So um, article here by Amanda Vanstone commenting on the recent developments here um, in relation to oh, basically the way that the Catholics have fought against the changes to the funding. And uh, yeah. she says... And she went to town on it, didn't she? <laughs> she, she? She did go to town on it in a number of ways except, except one way that I've got to have a gripe about, Scott. So she says... Here, okay, yeah. For the sake of transparency, let me say I went to an Anglican school and that my first stepfather in what was then a very sectarian Adelaide was a Catholic. And she says, the Catholics have been getting um, more just because they're Catholic. The Catholic education system has had a golden handshake from successive governments for a very long time. Uh, the preferred, the preferential treatment for the Catholic system meant that if you had two identical schools side by side, but one was a Catholic school and the other was Lutheran, the Catholic school would get more. There can be no good reason for that. Blah, 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 it goes on. But, Scott, the bit that I want to highlight is second paragraph. After saying, uh, I went to an Anglican school and my first stepfather in what was then a very sectarian Adelaide was Catholic. I'm a non-believer who lives as best I can by Christian values. This is the thing that gets me, Scott. Christian values. You, Amanda, you are living by normal, rational, civilised, human values. decency yeah. values, some of which the Christians adopted and some they didn't. 
and mm. they adopted a whole bunch of things that you've actually discarded because you've applied rational, reasonable thought to it. And what you've got left is is probably uh, a good set of values that relies in no sense on Christianity. Um, we've got to just keep pounding away at this, Scott, that... It, it happened with uh, Hugh Harris uh, wrote an article following on from the uh, census result. And yeah. when you see letters to the editor and that, all of them, well, not all of them, but there's a huge number of them say, oh, you know, you say all these things, but it's Christian values that have made this country what it is and you wouldn't want to let go of the Christian values and, you know, you might slag off at Christians, but it's Christian values that are saving this country and, and that are keeping you safe sort of thing. It, hmm. uh, Amanda Vanstone, guilty of the same thing. Oh, dear listener, when you hear it, just it, it, it should be like fingernails down a chalkboard. Where <laughs> people are talking about... It, it, it should be, shouldn't it? it? It really was ridiculous that she said, you know, I'm a non-believer who lives as best as I can by Christian values. Hmm. You know, you're dead right. She doesn't live by Christian values. She lives by the values of a decent, civilised society. Mm. Yeah. Uh, briefly, Scott, it's really it, it's so hard to try and work out the end Can result. Can we just finish? I'm sorry. Go. I just wanted to say yep. that... Um, she does make a good point here in the third paragraph. What if a bill was put before Parliament that varied your access to welfare depending on religion? Rightly, there would be an uproar. In essence, what the, that's what's been happening in education funding. The Catholics have been getting more just because they're Catholic. Mm. She's dead right. You know, it, It's absolutely bloody maddening that the Labor opposition is out there saying that they're going to restore all the special funding arrangements to them. Hmm. Mm. Sorry, yeah, I no, did cut you off. No, yeah. no you're right. Um, school funding. Scott, it is so yes. difficult to get a grip of where we are with the school funding and where we're going. For, for the ordinary lay person, it's nigh on impossible. And I've been waiting for some sort of scholarly essay to come out and try and help me out to just see where we're now at. But it seems, Scott, that we're in a situation where... Uh, Simon Birmingham has reached an agreement where the federal government is going to fund non-government schools to 80% of their schooling resource standard, and, he's mm. going to, and the federal government's going to fund government schools to 20%, and that he thinks that the reverse obligation lies with the states, so the states will be obliged to fund 20% of non-government schools' schooling resource standard and 80% of government schools. Scott, which branch of... I can understand where he's coming from and that sort of stuff, but I do think that um, when, you, when, you look at those, when you look at those numbers there, you can say to yourself, well, the Feds, you know, maybe the Feds should take over funding education entirely. I don't know. But, um, well, who's got the most... Who's, who's got money in this, in this federation of ours? Is it the, you know, it's the federal government that collects taxes... For yeah. the most part, and the revenue, and, and exactly. hands it yeah. out to the states. So we are in a diabolical situation where the arm of government with the most money, i.e. the federal government, has decided they're going to, give, they're going to be looking after 80% of the SRS for private schools 
and it's the poor state governments that have to fund 80% for government schools. It's completely arse about. Well, it's, that's why we should probably, um, you know, have a conversation about the whole school funding thing that comes down to, well, let's, let's move it all over to the feds then. We should move the funding. You know? We should move the administration. There's no real need. Everything over to the feds, yeah, and mm. then let the feds run it all. And then after that, we'll be able to get down to our Nirvana situation of doing away with state governments, mm. you know. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it seems that we've got some sort of thing in place where that's what he's saying. But, you know, as to whether the states will actually pay the 80% that they're supposed to for government schools, who knows? Mm. Who knows? And meanwhile, Gonski's gone away for six months to do a Gonski review 2.0. So what happens at the end of that? Who knows? Yeah. Very difficult to keep track of. Well, you know, it, it, you know, with the latest machinations on the liberal side of, the, of politics, you could end up with it's all having to go to polls before that's over. Mm. You know, mm. yeah. You're, you're tipping an early poll. I'm not tipping an early poll. I'm saying it's a possibility. All right. Because you know, uh, Turnbull has said that if he's rolled, he'll quit Parliament, and that will leave a um, that will leave them facing a by-election in a uh, in a. Uh, uh, What's the word I'm groping for? Safe seat? A marginal no, seat. Marginal seat. No. Marginal seat that probably could tip over into Labor balance and that would then give the Labor Party the upper hand and then they could call in a snap poll. Yeah. I seem to recall after the result of the last election, I tipped uh, an election within two years because I figured it was so close that these people just couldn't cooperate. Um, exactly, yeah. Wait so, and see. Well, we'll have to wait and see, but we'll have to see which side Tony Abbott sits on. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Scott, um, uh, assisted dying, Victoria's going to do it. They are, they are the state that is actually getting things done. And article here by Andrew Denton, and he's just giving a bit of background as to what's happening in Victoria. And he's basically saying that uh, it's gone to a parliamentary committee of eight members and six of the eight have agreed that voluntary assisted dying law should be written for Victoria. The two dissenting um, members of parliament, neither of them, Scott, went on the fact-finding mission overseas to see how such laws work in other states. They couldn't... They were on a committee looking at voluntary euthanasia laws, could not be bothered going on the fact-finding mission to see how it operates in other countries, they've just gone, no, we don't want it. Exactly. That was the thing that was really frustrating, was reading this. I thought to myself, how the hell would they know? Because they didn't even go on the fact-finding mission over to Oregon to see how it works. Mm. Well, it's it's because their local pastor has told them, Scott. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) One of them, uh, Liberal Inga Pulich, um, she's hosting the visit to Australia of a right-to-life doctor. And he, Scott, is a nutter who is being um, brought around to various MPs to convince them that assisted dying is not a good idea. Uh, according to this article... A yeah, but did medical... you read what else he believes in? Yeah, well, yeah. A hand-picked <laughs> medical expert is being flown out from the United States by right to life, to tell Victorian parliamentarians the grim news about how voluntary assisted dying laws have been working there. 
More on the doctor later, but spoiler alert, he's against abortion and refuses to prescribe contraceptives because they are against God's plan. He has openly questioned the validity of studies that prove there is no link between abortion and breast cancer, thus flying in the face of medical and scientific evidence. But hey, who needs facts anyway? Like, he's he's a right-wing religious nutter and... He's going around to all of these MPs, drafted over by this uh, Liberal MP, and in their ear, telling them all sorts of nonsense. Exactly. It's frightening. And that's the thing that's really frightening, is that he's going to be sprouting off God knows what to God knows who, and they're going to be listening to it. Hmm. So, um, so basically, Andrew Denton is saying to these MPs, don't listen to that nutter. Don't listen to the religious lobby, which he's specifically identifying. They don't represent their own constituency. And don't be fooled by the ear bashing that you are going to be subjected to. Remains to be seen, Scott, but I think Victoria will pull that off because Andrew's government's got a bit of gumption and actually wants to do things. Well, it says... It says somewhere there that um, most of the Cabinet and Andrews are in favour of an assisted dying law. Mm. The notable objections come from the Liberal opposition and also his Deputy Premier. Mm. Yeah, it is going to be a conscience vote, isn't it? I don't know. I would imagine so. Yeah. Mm. Because it's going to be a conscience vote, you've got... A, you've still got some left-leaning members of the Liberal Party that would actually vote for it. You've probably got a majority of the Labor Party, the Greens, the, and the majority of the crossbenchers would be in favour of it. So I think it, ha- I think it is going to get up. It'll only be a narrow victory, but it will get up. Hmm. Scott, uh, and if we can, sorry, you finished? There you go. No, I was just going to say, if we're finished, then the uh, final lines of the. Um, the final lines of the article. Consider California Governor Jerry Brown. Brown, who studied as a Jesuit priest, consulted other priests before signing the state's Death, Death with Dignity Act into law with these words. I do not know if I don't I didn't do not know what I would do if I were dying in prolonged and excruciating pain. I'm certain, however, that it would be a comfort to be able to consider the options afforded by this bill, and I wouldn't deny the rights to others. And I think he's hit the nail right on the head there. Mm. Mm. Sorry, go on. They will talk about slippery slope and elderly people being taken advantage of and uh, all of these sorts of things, which the other jurisdictions have shown these sorts of things do not happen. There is no slippery Mm. slope. Um, and their real reasons being religious reasons and and words from the Bible and Scripture will not be trotted out because they know people won't cop that. So they'll exactly they'll come through with ideas that they know aren't true, but they've concocted them. So hmm. you know, I, I I find it ridiculous that anyone can, can say that you know. Well, they will say that in any case it is good for you to suffer because it's through suffering that you will grow and come to know God better. I find that absolutely repugnant that someone would say that. And, you know, I watched my mother die with lung cancer and, you know, it's it was a bloody cruel end, mm-hmm. you know. Now, I don't think she would have taken advantage of this, you know, but 
had it have been an option, she might have done. But um, it's absolutely ridiculous that you've got a group of people trotting this guy over here from the States to try and convince our MPs not to side with it. I, I find that really repugnant, actually. Yeah. I reckon the Andrews government will do it. If I, if there's a sports bet one on that, then I'd be putting some money on it myself. I reckon they'll do mm. it. Scott, who is the most powerful man on the planet? Uh, well, Donald Trump currently. <laughs> yeah, I think I agree with you. He probably is. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a man in Australia with, in one respect, more power than Donald Trump. Yeah? You know? Yeah. Who's that? That is Peter Dutton. Really? <laughs> because, dear listener... This is, because of the, uh, this is because of the changes to the Immigration Act, is it? C- correct, dear listener. So yeah. in the United States, uh, the Trump administration has had all sorts of problems uh, enforcing their, uh, their, their ban on certain people from certain countries. And this article from New Matilda uh, says that everything that Trump has tried to achieve, um, Peter Dutton can do at the click of a finger. So the power that he has under the Immigration Act and under inherent executive powers would allow him to do exactly what um, Donald Trump would like to do. The only restriction on Dutton is in relation to refugees. But uh, in terms of people trying to arrive by aeroplane, etc., he's got the power now just to say, nope, stop right there, you're not coming. And, uh, yeah, it's quite extraordinary, Scott, that, that at least uh, on that score, Peter Dutton is more powerful than Donald Trump. It is amazing, isn't it? You know, yeah. you... The, the, the update... It, it, it... Sorry, Scott, go on. Well, it does make you wonder why Peter Dutton needs so much power. You know, it, it does strike me as strange that he's got himself into this situation that he's more powerful than the American president. Yeah, it's sort of... Uh, part of it relates to, you know, that executive power we've talked about in the past where mm. you know, the Queen or the, or the King sort of reserved to themselves certain powers like declaring war... And that eventually yeah. found its way to the cabinet and the prime minister as executive power that was just handed to them. So we're in this situation where, you know, our our prime minister can't get through simple laws that he might want, but if he wants to declare war and invade another country, he can do it at the click of a finger. It's like it's, it's mm. quite bizarre. And it's part of that power that uh, enables Peter Dutton to refuse anybody he wants to other than refugees and the reason he can't with refugees is because of treaties that we've signed and the Immigration Act also allows him to do it and just as an update in relation to the Trump ban there was a recent decision which said that uh, he can enforce his ban on people who have no contacts or relatives with the United States so if somebody has got family, a job or education contacts in the United States, then they can get in. Uh, it's the people who have zero sort of of those existing contacts that Trump is able to maintain his ban on. And that's only for 120 days or whatever it was. And it'll all sort of expire before he could appeal anyway. So that's the latest with the Trump ban. 
Scott, quick hmm. quick thank you to our patrons, Sean, Alex, Jason, Grant, John, Craig, Janelle, Al and Ken. Good on your patrons. Jason's online. Well, he might have disappeared, but he did it did stay for the beginning <laughs> anyway. And uh good on you. And Grant's online too. Mm. Yeah. And uh Alex, thank you, Alex. You have joined the Hall of Fame with Sean. You've been a real trooper over the time. Thank you very much. Dear listener. Not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Scott, we did talk about uh, the reaction of people to Hugh Harris's uh, article following on from the census and just got one here. To- Tosca Lloyd is the new CEO. I don't know if that's her official title of The Rationalist. She made various statements and comments after the census came out. The letters to the editor are fascinating. Some of the responses. Um, here's one of them. Letter to the editor. Uh, must be might be Sydney Morning Herald, I think. Uh, yeah, Sydney Morning Herald letters. Yeah. Yeah. Here it goes. More uh, talking about Tosca Lloyd and her piece. More thoughtful commentators have identified a gap in a purely secularist basis for society. Secularists seek to claim as their own values that arose from our religious heritage while cutting themselves off from the source of those values. It is a bold claim yet to be substantiated either intellectually or in practice. Meantime, religious persons are still citizens with an equal right to be heard on matters such as abortion and euthanasia as anyone else. That's from Neil Ormerod, Professor of Theology, Australian Catholic University, Scott. Well, okay. You know, yes, they've got the right to be heard. However, what we don't like is them um, mouthing off to the point that is beyond their actual reach. And that was what the census proved, was that the largest group was the non-religious and then all the other religions were carved up into smaller subsections. Now, admittedly, we're still only 30% of the population, but we've gone up from 20% last time, and we'll go up to 40% next time, you know? Mm. It was really... And this is, this is the, the, the thing I warned about last week. I said that, you know, you're going to have the ACL and those sorts of people are going to be carrying on like this, you know? Meantime, the religious persons are still citizens with an equal right to be heard on matters such as abortion and euthanasia and as anyone else. But when you actually break down those religious percentages, you get a much smaller percentage of people who are opposed to euthanasia and a smaller percentage that are opposed to abortion. So I find that sort of nonsense that this guy's trialling, you know, this guy's trotting out, absolute garbage. Mm. There's two parts mm. to it. He says that, um, you know, uh, the values arose from our religious heritage. Well, we've already said, let's bunk them. And 
The second one is an implication that they don't, they're not getting an equal right to be heard on matters such as abortion and euthanasia. My God, you're getting more than equal right to be heard. You don't complain. You, you, if if you think you're not getting heard and you're not getting enough of a voice, you're on a different planet. Yeah, Speaking it's really, it's really maddening that that, that he says that. Anyway. Mm. Yeah. Scott, India is a tricky place. And it is, isn't it? Yeah. There's been a number of of uh, of incidents lately where um, Muslims and Dalits are being attacked by vigilante cow protection groups. So uh, the Muslims and Dalits are are okay eating meat, and they raise cattle and slaughter them and stuff. And uh, these vigilante Hindus, Scott, I guess, are, are saying, hands off our cows. And mm. if somebody even looks like they might be a cow, you know, a butcher of some sort or operating an abattoir or in any way associated with the production of meat, they're in trouble in India. Um, and uh, what's happening is um, people are protesting and this, uh, this lady, Sabwa Dewan, she's organised a protest and she's given it, Scott, hashtag not in my name. And I find this sort of not in my name protest to be the most narcissistic, self-centred protest that you can dream up. Like, by all means, protest the killing of people for being involved in meat production. It's abhorrent that they should. But when you say not in my name, it's like, oh, you've insulted me and I'm protesting about that because you're conducting it in my name as a Hindu and you've dragged me into it. What a narcissistic, self-centred view of the world that you've got to make a protest like that about yourself. Hashtag not in my name. Yeah, it's ridiculous, isn't it, that they can go to that sort of length and carry on like it's a personal insult rather than um, what they're actually protesting about. And what they're protesting about is actually quite a reasonable thing to say, mm. you know, but to put it in there not in my name, that is just ridiculous. And it's happened on a number of other protests of different sorts around the world in different times recently, Scott, this sort of not in my name protest and... Uh, mm. There you go, dear listener, I'm sick of it. It's a self-centred, narcissistic form of protest and by all means protest what's going on but just you don't have to, you, you know, you don't have to throw yourself in as a victim in order to make a protest. Mm, exactly, yeah. So, uh, so that protest is being quite successful and, uh, Scott, we've mentioned in the past some of the difficulties Indian women are facing in India with, you know, being raped <laughs> and stuff like that. There's a lot going on. One enterprising um, lady has come up with a great idea and what she's doing is she's got this cow mask <laughs> which yeah. she picked up from somewhere Put that on her head and she's walking around and taking photos and stuff. And what she's saying is that it's actually safer to be a cow in India than it is to be a woman. And yeah, that and she's... It's a great you know, process. She, she, 
she's bang on the money there. It is ridiculous that it's safer to be a cow than it is to be a woman. You know, and that is something that their society really should look at and take a long, hard look at it and just get that nonsense dealt with because it's bloody criminal that you've got a ridiculous situation like that, that you've, that you've got women can't be... Um, you know, that you, that women can't even feel safe on buses and that sort of stuff. But you got this woman dressed up like a cow and she's okay with it, you know? Mm. It's an inspired protest, you know. Full marks. It is an inspired protest, yeah. Mm. Yeah, full marks indeed. Scott, uh, Jeff Horn, Manny Pacquiao, did you watch the fight? No, I didn't watch the fight, but um, I... I gather there's been a couple of blokes who've been um, banned from... Um, uh, sporting venues in Queensland for the next two years. Yeah, yeah, they uh, paved, they, yeah. they behaved appallingly to some ladies who who yeah. got, their fo- got their phones out and taped them, and and they've since been yeah banned from um, sporting events in Queensland. But Scott, yeah, you know the story. It's you know what a great story it is. You know he was bullied at school, and so in order to avoid being bashed up, he went and he learnt boxing trained hard so that, you know, someday down the track he could get in the ring with Manny Pacquiao and get bashed up by Manny Pacquiao instead of the bullies <laughs> at school. <laughs> it's, the story falls down a bit there, doesn't it? I don't... It does, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was in... It would have been just easier to let the kids at school bash you up because, by crikey, they wouldn't have done nearly as good a job as Manny Pacquiao did. (laughs) (coughs) Excuse me. Yeah. It's very true that, uh, yeah. Our friend, Yasmin Abdul-Majid. Oh, God. Is she back, is she? No, she's off to London. She's, She's off to London, is she? She's tweeted that Australia is just too racist for her and that she's um, going through an Australian rite of passage, heading off to London, and she's going to live there. So that will be interesting to see where she bobs up on, you know, the media well, she'll, in she'll, London. She'll pop up in, on the BBC or something like that, being the voice of Islam. Yes, you know? yes. Scott, let's, mm. let's run a little crystal ball gazing here. How long would it take? Before Yasmin Abdul Majid is quoted in a a London newspaper as a columnist, or appears on something you know the a UK equivalent of the Drum or Q and A or something like that, how long do you give her? Ah, uh, I'd say three months. Yeah, I mean she's probably already got it lined up now before she leaves. Yeah, she's a very good self promoter. I think. Yeah, I think you probably. I don't know how long these things take, but. Um, It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Scott Hugh Harris. So we're too racist um, for her, are we? Uh, what's that? We're too racist for her, are we? Yeah, that was part of it. So um, you know, oh. the response to her Anzac Day comment was was a racist response, and um, she laid low and kept quiet and wished that she hadn't. She felt, in hindsight, she should have got up and defended herself against all the allegations, which were clearly racist, she claimed. So, so yeah, she's off to London. Yeah. Mm. Bye. Well, 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 I'm sure we'll hear plenty about her. She won't disappear. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and that's, the thing that, that, that's the thing about um, 
we'll be able to find out how good the British media is, won't we? You know, whether or not it takes them very long to dig up the the Facebook conversation between her and the um, bloke from, well, oh, what's it called? The, was it Hizbat Tahrir? The right wing. Yeah, Hizbat Tahrir. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. You know. Mm. Scott, um, Hugh Harris, he was um, engaged in a Facebook um, debate with John Dixon and John Dixon deals. Yeah, he's the bloke that was on um, morning radio with, a, with with the ABC, wasn't he? He was the that one talked about who year, who oh, maybe over a year ago now was on Sunrise program, I think, with a Ferris spokesperson, and unfortunately okay. ran rings around the Ferris guy who wasn't across his brief as well as. John was across his, and it was quite embarrassing to listen to. And he's also a guy who was on the mornings program with Steve Austin um, going on about how wonderful the Bible is. And anyway, Hugh um, got into a debate with him over the issue of um, the Dawkins or Hitchens. One of them said, I think it might be Dawkins, said that um, there's not that much difference between religious people and atheists in the sense that atheists just disbelieve one God more than a religious person does. And you know, the idea is there's thousands of religions out there and most religious people just pick one of those and deny the other 2,999 and uh, atheists just take it one step further. And uh, it was a long and involved debate on this Facebook page that just went on and on for pages. And, Hugh, I admire your tenacity, but please (laughs) just reserve your energy for more important things than John Dixon's Facebook page because because it's just a wasted effort. I don't think you're never going to convince him or his followers for that matter, and I don't think he genuinely engaged with you um, and in the end, you've both sort of walked away agreeing to disagree over over definitions. So Hugh can't help himself. He's like a dog with a bone and just kept going and going and going. So on the one hand, I admire you, Hugh, for your tenacity. And on the other one, I feel a little bit sorry for you that you just you, you can't help yourself with these characters and you've got to get involved with them. So... Um, uh, For those who are interested, John Dixon will be at the New Life Uniting Church in Rabina on the 24th of July. And this is the topic of his talk. Uh, Scott, you might. This is a Monday night at 7pm. He's got here... um, The atheist Christopher Hitchens famously wrote that religion poisons everything. And increasingly across the Western world, people are coming to think of Christianity not just as outdated or irrational, but as actively harmful. Join John Dixon from the Centre for Public Christianity as he weighs up the influence Christianity has had on the world we live in and asks the question, if Christian history is full of violence and oppression, how can anyone still take Jesus seriously today? Well, that's a question I often ask myself, you know, <laughs> how can anyone take Jesus seriously today? But, you know... It's, it's a good topic, John. It, it'll be fascinating. You're, it's, this, it does... We do ask, how can anyone still take Jesus seriously today? The problem is, Scott, people just aren't rational. Like, 
people do not think rationally about issues, and I think that's the the short answer as to as to how anyone can still take Jesus seriously today, because people aren't rational. Yeah, you've got some um, very scholarly articles out there that you know question whether or not Jesus actually existed, mm-hmm. and no one of any um, decency or repute believes that he was the um, son of God, even if they do believe he did exist. You know, it's... it's, it's you, you, you know, I think he's, he's raised a valid question. How can anyone take Jesus seriously today? You know? Two points. One is, yes, people are not rational. I mean, you've, you've only got to look at Obamacare. Like, that was designed... The very people that was designed to help actually were against Obamacare because they'd been convinced that it was bad for them. And they were just the poor working-class Republicans who couldn't get health care. And here was something that was actually going to help them. And they were conned by their leaders into thinking that Obamacare was a bad thing for them. So people will actually vote against their own best interests if they're conned and they're gullible and... So there you go. There's one reason people don't think rationally. Mm. I, I don't know that yeah, that's, that's going to be. I don't think that's going to be the substance of his answer to that question. Um, no, of course not. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll be he'll be there arguing that Jesus is real and that sort of stuff, and that um, mm. you know he's very, he's, he's has very a big profound on, impact on his life. Mm, he's very big on, mm. on on claiming to be a scholar and poo-pooing anyone who's not a. Um, you know, doesn't have a PhD uh, in theology. Uh, and this is part of the thing with the conversation with Hugh Harris is that he was really quite belittling of people. Um, you know, during the, the conversation online, he says things like, oh, you know, you clearly, do I have to say this again? Do I have to repeat this? You know, are you so, without saying it directly, but the implication of the words were, you know, are you so ill-educated, so uninformed that I have to go through this again for you? <laughs> yeah. It was that sort of tone, which is which is just terrible. But um, so, you know, he'll be big on uh, on his qualifications as a theologian and... Scott, we previously said that instead of theolo- theologists, we should just refer to these people as instead of theologians, uh, fairyologists. Fairyologists, that's it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like to think of it in terms of um, the Grimm's fairy tales. So, uh, collection of fairy tales first published in eighteen twelve by the Grimm brothers. Um, contained eighty six stories. You know, Cinderella and. Um, all those sorts of uh, stories, Snow White, Hansel and Gretel, all that sort of thing. And, Scott, it's a legitimate form of study if you were to look at the collection of fairy tales, analyse, you know, what cultures they originated from, the changes that happened in them along the way, um, the way things evolved, uh, the influence in society, etc., etc. All perfectly legitimate you know, areas of study. And the same can be said with the Bible as an area of study. You know, if you apply the same sorts of ideas to studying the Bible, as I've just mentioned, then that's perfectly legitimate. The problem where theologians usually cross the line, though, Scott, is most people studying the Grimm fairy tales 
don't actually believe that the fairy tales are real. (laughs) And this is where theologians fall down because they do all that other study and then they go, well, of course Cinderella had a glass shoe. How can you possibly say she didn't? That's my feeling. Uh, So, um, so yeah, theologians... That's what they're up to. Um, Scott, briefly on Indonesia. Um, yeah, this dep- was ridiculous, wasn't it? <laughs> Dear listener, you know, when you're thinking tourism and, you know, you're thinking beaches or you're thinking skiing or you're thinking historic stuff or food or other things like that, well, the deputy governor-elect uh, in Jakarta... Um, Wants to establish a Sharia tourism zone because <laughs> he thinks people will want to go. I was thinking about this. What the hell are they going to look at there? Are they going to take in a caning or two? You know, it's absolutely. I can't, for the life of me, understand what the hell you're going to look at if you go into this place. You know, it's it makes no sense. Mm. He thinks people are going to flock there. They're going to love looking uh, in a Sharia tourism zone. It's not like they're going to be sitting at a bar watching the people going by, are they, Scott? No, they're not. You know, or they're going to be sitting in a tea house, you know, where they'll they'll have a cup of tea and they'll have those sheese pipes and that sort of stuff, but that would be about it. You know, it makes absolutely no sense. You, You pay extra if you've got a good view of the platform where they're caning somebody for being gay or uh, having sex outside of marriage. You know, that's... So anyway, if that guy gets his way, it will be a Sharia tourism zone in Jakarta. (laughs) Honestly. But see, um, if this gets up, that's a a, a very... um, it's, It's unfortunate for the people of Indonesia, but where it's even more unfortunate is you've got you, you you've been proven right that if you give them an inch they'll take a mile and mm. it started off in Aceh and then it's going to move down to Jakarta mm. and then once it's in Jakarta the entire archipelago will go you know mm. Mm. so that's I hope he doesn't get away with it I really do hope that he doesn't get away with it <sighs> I don't care I'm never going there so I'm, I'm... Well, neither am I, but, you know, they are a very near neighbour to us and that sort of stuff, so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Scott, we've got to move along. I'm going to skip a few articles and jump straight to the end with another great article from Ken and Malik in his Pandemonium uh, blog, How Culture Came to Appropriate Race. Um, he refers to an incident. Uh, last week, Sandeep and Rena Manda were denied the chance to adopt a child. It was not because their local council, Windsor and Maidenhead, thought that they would not have provided a loving family home, nor because there were no children to adopt. It is rather that the Manders are of Indian Sikh heritage, though both born in Britain, and the only children needing adoption were white. Scott, first thoughts. Indian Sikh couple want to adopt children... Only children available for adoption are white, and the council says, well, we can't do that. We can't have Indians adopting white kids. Well, see, that's just madness, isn't it? It's incredibly racist. It's terrible. It's it's absolutely disgusting that they would think that. Mm. But, Scott, 
put the shoe on the other foot and if you've got black family, uh, sorry, a white family wanting to adopt black children, do you think they should be able to? Of course they should. Mm. Currently in Australia um, with our Aboriginal children, there is a strong, strong emphasis that they first must be, in terms of foster care, looked after by Aboriginal families, so an active discrimination to put Aboriginal kids with Aboriginal families, and I'm pretty sure that the adoption runs the same way, Scott. So, Yeah, and, you know, I understand why they're gone that way because they're trying to prevent another stolen generation, blah, 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 blah. Mm. But it's racist on the faces, face of it. You know, it's really disgusting that they would do that. Mm. Yep, and yeah. so this is... Um, this is the point that the Kenan Malik article is saying is that um, it's a perspective that far from challenging racism simply appropriates the core of the racial thinking. So this is the idea of minority groups who would say they don't want their black children raised by white families because that would be denying them their black identity and yes, this is a common gosh. thought around the world and it's it's adopting the racism that they've been fighting against or their their ancestors have for generations and mm. applying it themselves it's it's um just a mirror image of that racism so he makes the point that uh in the post that's really quite offensive mm, in the post-world war in the post-war world, uh, the concept of race has disintegrated um, and it's been replaced not with the language of biology but of culture. And there's a right-wing and a left-wing form of this. So uh, the right or the new right, which emerged in the 70s, looked uh, to culture as a replacement for race. So... Um, uh, instead of saying we don't want those black people coming into our country, they would say we want to protect our culture as a means of, um, uh, you know, achieving the same end but done through the language of culture. And from the left, uh, culture has been a key component in its version of identity politics. Uh, different minority groups are seen as possessing distinct cultures, identities and ways of thinking um, and, and they defend those identities which is done in a mirror image of the new rights argument. So um, on both right and left, many now view cultures as fixed, bounded entities, each the property only of certain people. Once culture was seen as providing the tools with which to open up and transform the world, Today, many regard it as more of a protective wall to shield its members and keep out unwanted visitors. The immigration debate, once rooted in racial antipathy, fear of the yellow peril of the black invasion, today it's more often expressed in terms of cultural differences. Um, and he goes you know, on. That, that, that's absolutely ridiculous. And I'm sorry to cut you off, but... It really is madness that you've got this situation that you're you're trying to apply a cultural basis to an adoption. That 
baby mm. is going to be so small, it's still going to be carried around in its mother's arms. And they are trying to apply a cultural basis to that child already. That, that That's really madness because... You know, culture is something that you adopt or you choose to maintain. It doesn't, it makes absolutely no sense that you've got this situation that you've got a white child being denied of a happy family. Hmm. Essentially, a lot of identity politics based on culture is, is a racist policies and the left, absolutely and, the, the, left yeah. and the right are guilty of it. Great article by Ken and Malik. If you're interested, read the whole thing. And in the comments section afterwards, read the comment by Ray Halpin, an uh, Irish guy who lived in Australia for a while, tells a few of his experiences. Uh, really insightful as well in the comments section by that fellow. So, Scott, there we go. Um, we better wrap it up. Uh, next week... I think you might join us. We're going to try and do a three-way sort of conversation. So, dear listener... Oh, okay. That'll be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> if you're wanting to keep tabs of these, uh, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel and that'll keep you up to date as to when we are doing these things, if you want to join us for that. And... Scott, you were keeping an eye on it and no messages that we had to deal with by the looks of things. Uh, there and was something that, that Jason said a little earlier. Oh. Why isn't Yasmin Abdel Magid moving to a Muslim country? And yes. <laughs> and I thought that was very funny. So thank you for that, Jason. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, she just wouldn't be going to, would she? So. Well, yeah. that's exactly it. I mean, if she, if she really feels that we're too racist for her and that sort of stuff, she should move back to Somalia or where the hell she's from. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's all. Oh, uh, thank you to our patrons and um, Scott. We'll sign off there, and we'll talk to everybody next week. Thank you very much for tuning in. Bye now. Bye. Cheers. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fizz Velvet Glove and subscribe on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty Australian to I think ten dollars and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that? Less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you Get a lot out of the podcast, 
contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.